All right, so we're in the midst of our series in Matthew Volume 3, which means that we're still going on. We are in the 30th week of a study on Matthew. Yeah, week 30. Now, all of you who've been here a long know we haven't done it continuously. We keep coming back to it, but we really are building an audio commentary on Matthew, so we're going to go forward. Let me show you where we've been and where we're going. In the last couple of weeks, we've covered chapter 13 that was filled with parables about the kingdom, if you remember that. Chapter 14, we looked at Jesus in Nazareth. We saw that John the Baptist was beheaded. We saw the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And then Jeremy took over and walked us through chapter 15 and moved us into part of 16. We looked at the issue of tradition. You remember the, the teachings on what really makes a person clean or unclean. We looked at the story of the faith of the Canaanite woman, and we were looking at the feeding of the 4,000. And then we began chapter 16. The Pharisees come and demand a sign, and we looked at the teachings about yeast. So we've gone through a lot of different things in the last few weeks. Tonight, we come to probably the pinnacle of Matthew. This is kind of a point he's been driving to, and it's probably the place where we have to spend a little bit of time. There's a lot here because we get to probably the first major place where he's been driving to get us to. So we're going to see Peter's confession of the Christ, and then the turning point in Jesus' ministry happens tonight. Yes, 30 weeks to get us into the middle of chapter 16. So it's good. You guys know the rules. You can interrupt at any time and jump in. Let's start in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus is on his way to Caesarea Philippi. I got a picture of it because there's an important thing that happens at this location. It's a very rocky area, and this is the place where Jesus is going to announce that Peter's name becomes the rock. He talks about the rock, and one of the things that historians point out is he was in a very rocky place, and he's connecting metaphors. You know, he talked about being fishers of men to people who would fish. He was talking about sowing to people who would sow land, and now he's going to talk about a rock metaphor to people who are looking in the background as they're in this area and this is the area where there was a famous temple to the god Pan. And he takes them here, and this is where he starts to quiz them about who he is. But before we get really too serious about the text, while we were taking out the picture book, I thought one of the things that we did yesterday that was kind of fun was we actually hung out with Anthony yesterday, who is a black belt in karate. And I was trying really hard to figure out how do I sneak in pictures of Anthony without him deleting them from the PowerPoint. <laughs> So the only way I could do it was to hide them in the midst of our talk today. So if you'll excuse the interruption. A whole group of us went down yesterday to hang out with Anthony as he did his karate tournament. And there he is hanging out of there. And I was thinking, you know, we see so many different sides of Anthony. It's like, it's always like, like nice and playful Anthony, you know. But like none of us have really ever seen like Kung Fu Anthony, you know, like, you know. I had the chance to go to Russia with Anthony. That's when we saw like sexy windblown hair Anthony. <laughs> Can you just hear it, like that music, like, you sexy thing? <laughs> I almost got the music, but I didn't know how to get him to play it at this point. You know? <laughs> yeah, just like all the cool things, you know. So, okay, back to the study. <laughs> I was like trying to think, how would we ever get these in here? And, and true to form, a number of weeks ago, I told Anthony, I'm like, I'm going to sneak them in one day. He goes, you're assuming you can get them past me. I was like, <laughs> Now he's going, to filter every, he's going to filter every talk we ever do from now on. It was awesome watching Anthony having a whole group of people going out there to watch him do his tournament. And I heard today he kept going. So one, one, one remarkable thing about Anthony, if you guys haven't figured this out, is Anthony's never been absent. Like in the four and a half years we've been doing this, he's not been absent once, which is unbelievable. So thank you. Let's pray and get started on Matthew 16. Let's come back to uh, normal stuff. Lord, you are here already. You're here now. Your spirit resides in each person, so tonight unleash that spirit. When we speak in this room, when we interact, may it move us, Lord, and take these words that the spirit itself inspired and bring them back to mind. Illuminate them for us and dig them deep into our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. It's kind of, it seems like just an introductory part to this next 
portion of text that Matthew's going to walk into. But there is great import in almost every one of these phrases that's set up in this section. So I've actually kind of tried to piece it together for you. First of all, we've seen this word son of man a couple of times in Matthew, but we've never really delved into what does it mean. We think son of man, son of God, son of something. We just throw it in there somehow. But son of man has specific meaning. It actually comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel has a vision. He says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Think for a moment what that means to a person like Daniel, who's a Hebrew, who's a Jew, who believes that there's only one ancient of days, one God. And he has a vision of somebody who is like him, who approaches him, who is to be worshipped, whose kingdom will never be destroyed. This is where people started to get this messianic hope. And that's why when Jesus uses a word like the Son of Man, People knew right away that he was making a reference to something that wasn't just, hey, who do you people just say that I am? He's identifying himself in a very significant way. In fact, later in Matthew, to foreshadow it a little bit, we're going to see the same use. That coming with the clouds was a reference to God. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky. There it is again with power and great glory. That's an identification with God. It's an identification of a divine nature to come with the clouds. In fact, it's the very words that are going to condemn Jesus at his trial. If you skip forward a little bit more, the high priest is questioning Jesus' trial. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those are the words that cause the high priest to tear his garments and to immediately find that they can condemn Jesus for blasphemy because he has said, I am divine. Those words give us that implication. So when we come back to this text and we just look at it, We've read this verse so many times, we kind of lose its meaning. Like, who do people say the Son of Man is? It sounds like just such an innocent question, but it's loaded with implication. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Where do we get this from Matthew? We've seen all of this before. In fact, what makes this pinnacle moment of chapter 16 so easy, and you're going to see I'm going to keep throwing up flashbacks, is Matthew is tying this all together. We've seen all of this going on for the first 16 chapters. For example, look at John the Baptist. Why would people think he's John the Baptist? Just a few weeks ago, when we were looking at Matthew chapter 14, we saw that Herod thought that maybe when he heard about Jesus' miracles, that it was John the Baptist coming back to haunt him again. He says in verses 1 and 2 that Maybe this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. He was worried because he keeps hearing about this miraculous person. I remember he had beheaded John, but he was worried that somehow maybe Jesus was a resurrected John. How could this guy be out there doing all these great things? So some people thought it was John the Baptist. Other people thought he was Elijah. Why would they think that? There's numerous prophecies that point to and the messianic hope of Israel at this time was that the Messiah would be foreshadowed or there'd be a precursor, which was Elijah, that Elijah would come back. In fact, Jesus references it himself, and we looked at this verse in Matthew 11, 13 and 15. When he was talking about John the Baptist, he said, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he, being John, is the Elijah that was to come. Let him who has ears, let him hear. John the Baptist is the person who is the precursor of the Messiah. He is the person who's that figurative Elijah that comes before the Messiah. So Jesus sets up this very loaded question, and he gets back these various responses. Might be John the Baptist, 
People say you might be Elijah. People say Jeremiah because you're somebody who's coming to preach about a coming kingdom and a judgment that's coming. People are saying all sorts of things. And now he gets to the crucial question. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Matthew has been driving to this point of identification of who is Jesus. And he uses this question here that Jesus poses to Peter, Who do you say I am? This is kind of one of those places where, as we go through the book of Matthew so much, we can stop and think for a moment, just take a pause and ask yourself the question, who do you say he is? I think most people in this room, as we've journeyed together, are pretty clear. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus, notice, he points out to Peter that you couldn't have just figured this out on your own. It was revealed to you by the Father in heaven. Kind of a crowning moment for Peter, don't you think? I mean, he's like answered right. Like, if you're going to win an award, like we were talking about that award earlier, like, this would be a good award to win. Like, you won the I Identified Christ First Award, right? (laughs) That's a pretty cool award to win because he's right on target. Jesus says, I mean, blessed are you. He blesses him for the answer. Let me show you the import of what happens. Here's the award he wins. I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. He gets a big award. First he gets a new name. Although it's not really new, because we see elsewhere, including in the first chapters of John, that he's already named Peter, Peter, (laughs) from the first time he meets him. I mean, even from the first time he meets Simon, at least according to the book of John, he says, I'm going to name you Peter. But here, he's explaining why he's going to name him the rock. Okay, so we've had Simon Peter, we see him as Peter many times in Matthew. But here we get the idea, because you are the rock. And I will build my church upon this rock. So you might see elsewhere, especially in the epistles, that Peter is referred to in different ways. He's referred to as, in the English, Cephas. But in the Aramaic, it's really Cephas but it also means rock, all right? So here he is being identified as the rock. And he gets these cool keys. That's like the symbol, like if you're going to get the trophy, the keys. He goes, you get these keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Philip. Well, like, not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I know that that's Jesus talking to Peter specifically about what Peter said, um, and it's not like a general statement for everything, but I'm not sure exactly even what the implications of that individual statement are. Okay. Tell me what you think the implication is. My thought of the implication is that realistically we're just tools that God uses and chooses to use how he chooses to use us because he reveals what he wants to to who he wants to. Okay. Anyone else have an idea about it? I mean, the implication that people could have by looking at it, the implication could be that we're prevented from being able to identify Christ for who he is without God revealing it. That sounds like the implication. Monique? Someone couldn't recognize Christ for who he was unless the Lord opened his eyes and let him to. Because he's like, you know this is Christ, the Son of God, because God let you know and told you he was. So what is salvation if it's not recognizing that Christ is the Son of God and coming to that admission and then following him with your life? So this is an example where a human being didn't do that until God gave him the answer. Okay, let's be very careful because nothing in this text so far talks about salvation. Talk about implications or possible implications. Okay, that's why it starts to bother us a little bit because we'd like to have so much free agency that we could discover Jesus for who he is totally on our own without having anybody having to reveal it to us first. Jeremy. I don't know, though, if it's actually talking about some revelation, like as if Peter had a dream or suddenly. I mean, it could just mean he figured it out 
In other words, you could even say God was that which was behind him the entire time, guiding him and illuminating him, but the fact that it's revealed at this point may just mean, I don't know, he's pieced enough things together, he's been rebuked enough times for being an idiot, that he's, you know, he's starting to put things together. So in, in that sense, it's, more, it's much more passive, just not like God coming down on high and revealing it to Peter, but just, yeah, it was revealed to you, but maybe he just figured it out. You know? But this beatitude of blessed are you really would make no sense unless something had happened. I mean, if he had just kind of lucked into it or had clicked at the last moment, that's not really, like Jesus seems to emphasize the point by saying a blessing is upon you because you have gotten this and you didn't get it on your own. God has revealed it to you. Now, Jeremy, you're partially right, though, because they have been slowly figuring it out. It's been slowly unfolding. Like some of us in reading the first parts of Matthew that we have would think, I don't understand how you didn't get it yet. We even just a couple of weeks ago saw them crying out as Jesus is walking on the water. They cry out about the Son of God. They use that actual, like they say, truly you are the Son of God. They use that language. But it seems like they never quite understand the full impact of it. And by the way, in a few moments we're going to see that even Peter doesn't quite understand the full impact of it. It's going to unfold even until after the crucifixion, probably at the beginning of the church at Pentecost, that they're finally going to really understand it. Yeah. Well, again, I think, though, that fact you brought up the fact that later he's going to not get it. I think that really clearly shows. I mean, if it had been some kind of direct revelation, then I don't think he would have so clearly. He, would have, he wouldn't have jumped so quickly back into the doubting Peter phase. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that it's a direct revelation, just to be clear. Whatever that is. I mean, something, yeah. Something more. Angela. I think I'm somewhere in between these two. I think uh, it's almost like it was like God maybe had Peter be the rock all along, but it's in that moment. I mean, there seems to be an initiative that Peter is making by declaring. So it is a choice by revealing that declaration, but um, it's obviously not in the uh, Nothing's on anybody's own. Phil? Because I think it's interesting, even like the blessed are you, like can, I think it can take in two ways, I'm not really sure, like blessed are you because you did something worthy of blessing, or blessed are you because something happened to you that was amazing, like that you're a blessed person because God chose to reveal this to you, like, or blessed are you because you stepped into your role, like, I could see it going both ways, I don't I think anybody would have been blessed if they had stepped to that role, because that's a blessed role to be the rock. But it just seems like, like this was not revealed to you by man, like that. It didn't feel like it was something Peter did. Like, it seems to be like that's the distinction Jesus is making. Like that it wasn't something man can do. Like this could have only happened because God revealed it to you. It's what not necessarily like direct revelation dream. And I don't think Peter like understood everything at that point. Like he just got that point. And that was it. Yeah. Look, we have a couple things. First, to answer your points directly, it is a it is a measure of both. The blessing is pronounced because God has revealed it to him. But there is certainly a blessing to what he's about to step into, as you said. That is clearly there. Um, it's both. In terms of, is this a direct revelation, or is it the time spent with Jesus? It's probably the time spent with Jesus more than a direct revelation. But we have to remember that scripturally, we also know that there's verses that say that we cannot come to Christ but for the Holy Spirit. So for those of you who are struggling with what exactly does this mean that it's revealed to you, yeah, we're in a strange spot right now between the time when we're not yet at the crucifixion and the resurrection and the announcement of the church and all these other things that are going to come where we understand with the Holy Spirit actually living in us these doctrines more clearly as they're written about and discussed and enumerated. But we do know that that's scriptural. So that wouldn't bother me too much to see that even the revelation of who Christ is comes through the Father or later the Spirit. That's what we have in scripture. I think that's probably where we're going to leave it. Philip's right to stop us. It's not a throwaway point. And it does have implication. But I think that we're going to see that whatever he understood, he doesn't understand fully. And you'll see that on the next slide in a few moments. Let me go through a couple of these things here. If we focus on these verses, I tell you that you are Peter. So actually, in the language, in Aramaic, that I tell you that you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There have been people who have tried to figure out on what rock. Are we talking about Peter? 
are we talking about just on the identification of me as Christ? What is it that I will build the church upon? And you know what's interesting is I have always been taught that it isn't on Peter the rock. It's just on the identification of Christ. And I went looking for that interpretation and I couldn't find it. I searched through numerous commentators who all said the same thing. The language clearly states that it's on Peter that he's going to build the church. And that our understanding, so if you've ever heard that it's, that's not what he's saying, he's saying just on the fact that you know that I'm the Christ or anybody else who knows it, that's the foundation. I have to say the, the best I could come up with is it's just an anti-Catholic interpretation that we were so freaked out by their doctrines about the papacy and all the stuff that flows out of this implication. And many of you know that Catholic theology has taken this way the other way by claiming all sorts of things like Pope speaking ex cathedra and all these different things that flow from this verse. And later, from Jesus restoring Peter on the beach after he's denied him. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land, there's a church that's called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter. And it's built on the place where Jesus restores Peter over the breakfast of fish. And they trace this verse and that verse to the whole beginnings of why the papacy exists. And so those of us in the Protestant tradition kind of freaked out and overreacted and interpreted it a different way. But I want to say in fairness, he is actually saying that you, Peter, who've identified this, I'm going to start with you. And we see that historically going on in the book of Acts. Peter is always seen as kind of the spokesperson. He's always the one to act a little bit more brashly. He gets it, and then he doesn't get it. But he seems to be the person we most see. And we see him first in the book of Acts on Pentecost taking charge. And of course, we know that he's one of the early pillars of the church for a good number of years. So that is kind of what the text is saying. Uh, you did win the jackpot, and you are going to be the person with whom I begin and you will have that kind of position. Okay, what does he get for having won? He gets the keys. Oh, let me go back one if you don't mind. The gates of Hades will not overcome it has troubled some people. What does it mean that the gates of Hades will not overcome it? Like, we're not going, why would we want to go to Hades? Like, I don't understand what that means. Or like, does the gates of Hades chase you down? Like, what is that reference to? The gates of Hades was a common way of saying the gates of death so that nothing will overcome it and it will not die. So that even if it was entrapped in the gates of Hades, in other words, even if it was encircled by them, it would not stop the church and stop the movement that's going to go on. That's what he's saying. So that's always been kind of confusing language because it sounds like gates are a defensive mechanism. Like, you know, when you say will not overcome it, that sounds like an offensive thing. So that's been kind of a puzzle in the text. All right, what are we getting? He says the keys, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does Peter get to do whatever he wants and it will happen? Is that what he's saying? We covered these verses when we looked at the power of prayer and binding and that language that we use in Christian churches about binding things in heaven. What does it mean? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Since we talked about this verse previously in another series, let's hear the answer from somebody else. Spiritual Alzheimer's. Yes. Well, I don't remember <laughs> discussing that, but I... proving my point. Thank you. But I do know that that is a, a, a like it's like a Jewish phrase, which just means that if there's some kind of decision that has to be made, or if you've got to either permit or restrict some kind of action, then you have the authority to do that. That's exactly right. In fact, even things like interpreting the Jewish law was often phrased in a way of what you bind and what you loose. It's been phrased that way. So Peter, given authority to bind things and loose things in that way, is giving him the authority kind of in an ecclesiastical way to, to decide things, to make decisions, to restrict, to maybe interpret some things that are going to come in this movement that's going to begin as the early church. The reason I point out again is because a lot of people look to this verse and the one we're going to see in Matthew 18 again as saying if people get together and agree on something, it's bound in heaven, that means that God has to do it. And we've debunked that in our last series. I just want to remind you that once in a while we see how scripture all comes together and this is one of those places. In our study, that is not what he's saying. 
The keys that he has, by the way, is also not Peter at the gate who gets to decide who comes in and who comes out, which has also been a crazy popular notion of what this verse means. No, it means that he, as the rock, as the foundation of this early church, will have these decisions and he will have to make them as well. It comes with great authority. Finally, he tells his disciples not to tell anyone that he's a Christ. We've seen this in Matthew a number of times. We've talked about it before. I just want to reference it back. Why is Jesus, if he's, his mission is so important, why is he keeping from people that he's the Christ? Go back and listen to those earlier talks when we see that he's slowly letting things out. This is the climax of part one. In fact, if you were writing the book of Matthew, you could stop right there and go, end of act one, time for intermission. Because from the beginning, all the way until this point, he has been building to this climax and then the curtain closes temporarily, because it's going to open right where we started here. But it's basically saying all of this pointing and all the miracles and all the parables and all the things that he's doing to, to the point where it, it points out he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And that's where he kind of ends it. Now the funny thing is our, our chapter and verse breaks don't do that. It keeps going. So we're going to keep going to this part right here. From that time, if you go all the way back to when we started our study of Matthew, he used the same exact beginning. This is a bookmark for Matthew as a literary device. Right after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, as he begins his ministry, it said, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So now as we begin Act 2, if you will, that's exactly what he says. From that time on, now the mission has a different focus slightly. He's going to be revealing more and more of who he is. He's going to be spending more time teaching the disciples now. And he's basically going to announce right now that things are going to lead up to my death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the new thing that we're driving towards now in the second act. From this point forward, we're driving towards this event. And now Peter, who's probably really filled with excitement that he just won the, the Golden Keys Award, and emboldened with this new power that he has to bind and to loose, and realizing his importance among the other disciples and everybody else, hears these words and takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. I love this part, you know? Like, he just got it, and he takes, he, Jesus makes this announcement and reveals a very, very key thing that's going to happen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, maybe the word rebuke is a little strong, the way it's rendered in the NIV, other translations might use a different way, but it basically, the, most, the closest literal wording would be to kind of speak to him straight, like, this can't be the plan. May this never come to pass. Peter's never saying, no, Jesus, this is not going to happen. He's just saying, Lord, have mercy. Let's not let this happen to you. Like, let's avoid whatever it's going to take. We, we don't want this. This is not the plan, right? And why would you feel that way? Because, well, you're the rock. You're the foundation. You've, you've got the keys. You know what's going on. And like now, you're pumped, and you've got to protect Jesus, make sure that everything goes according to plan. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now forget my Act 1 division, Act 2 division. This is the same, like this is a connected paragraph of thought from the Peter gets it to the Peter is Satan <laughs> in the space of a very short time. Now we don't know how long the time is because this transitional statement from that time on could have been the next day, could have been the next hour. We don't know exactly how much time had passed. But clearly from the height, Peter has kind of come down to a low point in his getting it factor, into his scoring points factor. Notice this word here, stumbling block. Actually, that's another play on words. 
You're a stumbling rock, is what it really means. So before you were the rock by name, you're the rock on which I'm going to build a church. Now you're a stumbling rock. You're Satan. You're going to trip me up. Why does he call him Satan? Anyone know? Why Satan? I mean, that's kind of harsh. Is it just a name, like bad name? What, what does Peter share with Satan? Trying to prevent it. Yeah, what's he trying to prevent? Yeah, Wes. The world trying to prevent the fulfilling of the prophecy. Yeah. I mean, this is like every bad movie you've ever been in, where there's like, the prophecy, we have to prevent the prophecy, right? It's like every one of those movies. Yeah, Satan has tried three times earlier to tempt him not to go through with it, right? Remember the whole temptations? Like, all right, all right, I'll just give it to you if you just bow down to me, or why don't you just do something other than follow the... Let me get, see if I can get you to mess up one time and prevent you from being that sacrifice, prevent you from taking the cross for everyone else. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. Peter's saying, no, 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 let's not let this happen. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. He says it in explanation. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's kind of a stinging rebuke to somebody who just got it because God revealed it to them, at least the way the plain words are written. Somebody who gets it and is called blessed, and now is called Satan, and they have the things in mind of man. Is Peter missing the point? Sure. But it's so easy to do. We do the same thing. Like we think we have it all in mind. We think we get it. And then we immediately jump to the wrong conclusion as a result sometimes. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. I mean, I'm sure Peter's not thinking, hey, how do I screw up the plan? That's not his goal. He's thinking, how do I take what I just got and what I think just happened to me and take it a step further? And now actually use this, and he immediately starts thinking like a man, human, not the way that God is thinking. So Jesus gives him an example. Then Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Peter, you're missing the point. You think that what's going to happen is now that you've identified who I am, that all things are going to work out great, and that we're just going to kick off and the party begins now. But that's one of the things that makes it so strange. Like, Peter, haven't you been listening to me? Haven't you been traveling with me? You've got the order reversed. Like, you're looking for the glory now. But first there's going to be suffering, and then glory later. These words are not uncommon. We've even heard them before. Again, this is the flashback chapter. We've seen the words almost exactly when we were back in Matthew 10. He said then, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's that teaching again, side by side. Peter should have understood this. Haven't you been listening? Haven't you got it that you've, you're going to have to lose your life? And Jesus is going to do that first. He's going to lay it down first. You know, this thing about taking up his cross and following me, as you see this parallel in both verses there, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. That is an allusion to them. They probably don't really understand that Jesus is going to literally be crucified. But they knew what the Roman habits were. They knew that people were crucified. I mean, they understand what it's saying. Hey, you've you got to pick up the instrument of your own execution even if you want to follow me. Maybe they're still thinking it's figurative. Maybe it's metaphorical in their mind. Maybe they don't know, and I'm pretty sure they didn't, that Jesus is going to mean this literally for himself and maybe for a couple of them as well. But that's the language and that's how it goes. And then Jesus asks rhetorically, what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? In payment for his soul. The literal wording is a financial payment. What can a man give as payment for his soul? It's rhetorical. We know the answer. Nothing. You can't give anything for it. It ends like this. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, 
And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What do you think of that? So we understand that Peter might have jumped the gun. We understand that Jesus is reminding him that if you follow me, don't forget the standard of discipleship. Just because you became Peter and I pronounce this blessing on you, that doesn't change everything I've taught. That anybody who doesn't give up all these things, and as Luke 14 says, anyone who does not give up everything for my sake cannot be my disciple. Like, Peter, don't forget that. So he does that, reminds him of the same teaching again. And remember, now it means more because he's talking about death. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. So this is all serious. And then he gets to this part. For the Son of Man will come in the Father's glory with his angels. We like that. That's cool. And he will reward each person according to what he's done. Eh, that's not so much so good. Like now we have to actually worry about what we've done. And then he talks about this, I tell you the truth, some are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we think, gosh, that's been an awfully long time. Are those people still alive? Philip. I'm going to have the reward thing because um, is that idea commonly connected to at least the, the theological idea of maybe like rewards in heaven? Or is that like, you know, he's going to, uh, is that... Or is that just rewarding each person? Or is that something else? Or is that like... Okay. To be fair, probably as they listen to it, they're probably not thinking about rewards in heaven because they don't quite understand the full measure of it. Our problem is we're reading back into it a number of scriptures that come later. And there are a number of scriptures that come later, including Jesus' own that he keeps repeating. And Paul has a number of them that make clear that believers will have differing rewards in heaven a concept that I struggled with for a long, long time before I finally was wrestled to the ground and accepted it. But I think that's definitely biblical. And it's not just implied, it seems pretty clear when you finally just kind of let go of your interpretational bias and just read it the way it's written. But you'd have to actually read the whole of Scripture, which is not unfair. I mean, to look at the context of the entire New Testament and then realize that that's probably one of the things he's saying here. All right. So we can understand that. Maybe rewards, Jesus coming back, all that's good. What about this part, though, here? Doesn't that bother you? I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I mean, one interpretation is that Jesus just didn't know. I mean, he says only the Father knows, so you could take that view. What does it mean? If he didn't know, why would he talk like he did know? Because Christ can't lie, and he's not going to mislead people. He says, I tell you the truth. That's pretty strong language, right? I mean, actually, I'm not even sure if it says directly, I tell you the truth. I wonder if the actual Greek says truly, truly, which is even more of a double whammy. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, if you want to take it into like, a specific context of this passage, couldn't it be referring to when he um, ascended, like when he did ascend off the earth? I mean, in our context, we can look at it as, well, you know, Jesus is coming and, you know, end times are near, and some of us might be around when the rap, like when he comes back and he lifts everyone up into heaven. But if he's talking to them specifically, it can be into reference of when some of them see him ascending into heaven. Okay. Don't a lot of scholars interpret this as like an apocalyptic verse? Like, like they literally thought he was going to come back before everybody died. But, um,. I don't know, can it be, can it be like a spiritual kingdom, like the spiritual birth of Christianity? Like, just your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I guess we have to define what he's talking about. Some of you will not taste death before the Son of Man, so we understand all that part, but the part that we have to define is comes into his kingdom. I mean, if that means second coming, then I think we got a problem, but I don't know that he's saying that, right? That's why we have to define what is coming in his kingdom. So one interpretation is the resurrection. That would be easy enough to understand, and most of us, that would resolve the problem. Okay, any other interpretations? Angela? Didn't Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand? Yes. What does that mean? Well, it's at hand's reach. It's close. So I, I mean, I think that's where we could start. We understand that. Then whatever that kingdom is, it was at reach 
in your body. Okay. Sarah? Yeah, isn't this the verse where uh, he refers to them seeing him in the wilderness later? And Elijah and Moses appear with him and they see him in all his glory and they say, hey, can we build an altar for you and you and you? And isn't that what he's referring to really? That's one understanding of it. Yeah. Philip? My, my trouble with, I think, all of the interpretations is that the, the sentence right before like, uses almost the same, not exactly the same, but very same language. Like, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Um, and that seems to be connected to so it see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And like, maybe those are talking about totally different things, but at least it would, it would seem odd that they were. Um, and at least none of those interpretations I've heard so far have been like, the Son of Man coming in his Father's glory with his angels, um, like with Ascension, with Elijah, like uh, with just the church starting, with him resurrection, like, so I, I don't see any of them really fit. Okay, Jeremy? Well, I went on with Mark and Luke, uh, but I think it, it would help in this case, just because um, in Mark, Phil, to, to your point, it's actually separated. So, uh, the last, verse 28 is, and then he said, in fact, it's given a new chapter even. Again, I don't know the reason behind that, but th there seems to be some kind of separation in Mark's account. And I think in both Mark and Luke, again, I, I read it really quick, but there's nothing about angels. In, so it's, th there's something else going on here in Matthew. In fact, to me, that whole 27 and 28 seems strange compared to, or what can I, the rhetorical question was just, like it almost feels like this really out of place insert. Melanie? Going back to one of the previous verses that we read, um, it did say that after um, the resurrection and after he went back to his kingdom with his father, that he would be seated at the right hand of God. And so that also implies that he's, he's entering the kingdom at that time and he's receiving, you know, the glory and everything because of what he has done. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's like totally the explanation for this verse, but it says the Son of Man is coming to, is coming to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And that verifies the fact that he is going to his Father's glory because he has beaten death. And there's an angel there that is telling them, hey, this is what's going on. And the part where it says, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. If you take that and say, well, what have you done with what I have asked you to do for my kingdom? What have you done with the knowledge that you know that I have risen from the dead? And then I tell you the truth, some of you are standing, they saw that. They were able to see him ascend into his father's kingdom. I think that ties it up well. The theories have all been stated, by the way. Some people think it is the resurrection. You guys seem to agree. Some people say it's the transfiguration, which we're going to cover next week. Goes right into it, although I think that's probably not the best one. Some people say that it's literally just the kingdom is already at hand, as Angela pointed out. The reason that there's a debate about what it means for the kingdom to be at, at hand is most people know the kingdom is not fully here on earth. But notice that would be looking at it from our perspective. Like, we know the kingdom is in part here, and it's yet to be fulfilled. We've talked about that tension enough that I'm not going to even go into it. But that's from our perspective as to the kingdom comes. I think what Melanie says that I really like is it does connect to the whole passage he's talking about. Identifying himself as the son of man. There it is again. That son of man language links to a very specific definition of he who will come and rule in glory, whose kingdom will be everlasting and have no end. And when does that happen? Matthew in Matthew 26, when we get there in about 17 weeks or so. <laughs> Matthew 26 will tell us that it is when he's resurrected and that he'll sit at the right hand of God. Now, putting time aside, what time is there in heaven and outside the realm of earth and all that stuff, it clearly seems to be that at the resurrection and the ascension at some point later, that that is where he is going. That is where he's going to be seated. He says that himself. It seems like that would be the best explanation that I can look at as to what the coming in his kingdom, not from our perspective, not the earthly kingdom that we're part of now, which is his, but we're always looking at it from our point of view. 
From Jesus' point of view, he reigns. In fact, to be honest, he's always reigned. He's never not reigned, except during this period where he comes to earth and gives that up for the time to be the incarnation. We know that Jesus is from the beginning. He's always reigned. Last comment. Uh, it's good to remember also that Matthew is the author of Matthew, is writing to a very Jewish audience. He's obsessed with proving that Jesus Christ is one and the same with Yahweh. So every chance he gets, he kind of, by the way, you know, <laughs> Jesus will be with God and the Father. There's always this language that's kind of in there to prove that Jesus is sent by the Father. Uh, that's kind of <laughs> All right. Let me close it this way. This was what we called a flashback chapter in a lot of ways. And let me not talk to you at an intellectual level, let me just talk to you at a friend level for a moment. Every time we come back to the book of Matthew, you know, when you look at it, you think, oh, it should be like we're just reading scripture, and like that should be the easiest thing to do. This has been repeatedly one of the hardest series to do. But here's why. The challenge is the minute that we say something, we talk about it, the next week it's like we've lost what we said before. Notice how many verses connected back to things we've already talked about in Matthew. And yet they still stump us. In fact, to be straight out with you, we cover the same material over and over. It's like we have to relearn it every time we come back to it. We're not unlike the disciples, by the way. So don't take that like an insult. In fact, Peter, as we move into chapter 17, is going to show us again how much he doesn't get it. But that doesn't relieve us of the obligation to get it. We have tools that Peter didn't have and the other disciples didn't have. Like, we have the scriptures to constantly go back over again. That's why we record everything we do in this room, so that you can go back over it again and again. Even this debate about what does this mean isn't new. Here's another flashback. We've already covered this in Matthew 10. Jesus made a very similar statement when he says, that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It's the same flavor. And we were dealing with what does come mean there? Like, what does he mean by son of man coming? What's all that about? It seems like in chapter 16, especially the part we've been looking at, is you could lay it side by side, connecting the dots with other things that we've done. But what I'm saying to you is, we're having a hard time connecting the dots because the minute this is over, it's gone. It like evaporates. And I'm going to challenge you to try to hang on to it and let it grow. That means that we, all of us, not just the people like me or Morgan or Jeremy who's presenting, but that all of us have to actually go back and continue studying over and over because here's the impact. If we don't do that, then we can walk around with all sorts of wrong ideas about what our faith is really about and it, we get ourselves into trouble. This chapter presents a great example because the disciples are going through things where it's like they haven't been listening. But maybe they have. It's hard to keep all this in mind. We're trying to understand the teachings of an infinite God who, in the incarnation of Christ, seems to always talk in riddles. But that's all the more reason that we can't just come in here, listen, absorb some of it, and expect that it's going to stick. It won't. It won't. I can tell you that even as much as I read to prepare for Sunday nights, it doesn't stick in my mind unless I go back and do it over and over again. So I'm saying that to you because it would be an awful waste to sit in here and go through these things and end up in the same place that some of they are going, yeah, I don't know what that means. Or to come back in two or three weeks and ask the same questions and get those same kind of answers. Comments? Oh, well, just to give some validation to what you're saying, I feel like if there's a spectrum of, like, we don't understand it because it's so hard to grasp and because some stuff is somewhat unknowable or whatnot. And then we don't understand it because like, we don't seek it out. I feel like I'm so much more on that side of the spectrum. And it might be just me. So if so, like, please rub off on me. It's good that you guys are wrestling with it. But I, but I think that, like, I, I just want to go back to that because I think about like, what Jesus said and what his message was about, like, about truly like seeking the kingdom, and I, and I feel like it's just really easy for me sometimes to come here and to listen and think, okay, that's nice, and like, but not to make this and make this like pursuit of understanding, like pursuit of God ultimate. And so, so I don't know. So I just felt like it was a good word to me. So I, I just want to echo that. 
Look, the thing I'm trying to do in a, in a more pastoral moment rather than a more teaching moment is say to us that it's a shame for us to spend the time that we do in here if it were to lose. I mean, then why do it, right? I mean, whether we got the answer or we didn't, if we lost the ground that we gained, we might as well spend our time doing something much more important to the kingdom if we're going to constantly erode what we have. That's a discipline. That's requiring more of you even than the abuse you take in here every Sunday night, you know? That's more than just spending the time on Wednesdays to do it. But it, it is a right word that I have to speak out when I see this text because it constantly refers back. I mean, the disciples had the same issue. We should apply it to our life. We have the same issue. When Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, he did something very interesting. He added mind, which was not originally there. He highlights mind to make it clear that Jesus was not a guy who just walked around and taught faith. He was the one that schooled the elders at 12. He was the one that grew in wisdom and stature through the study of the scriptures. If we want to be Christ-like, that means we have to do the same thing. So sometimes when we ask, like, why do we abuse ourselves so much on a Sunday night, to go through all these things, it's because Jesus would commend that same thing. All right. Enough seriousness, let's close up and, and do some worship, and then we're going to go buy a bunch of school supplies. So go grab some money and let's do some good, not just uh, beat this up intellectually. Let's do something tonight. Let's, let's pray together. Lord God, may just something that we do tonight please you in the way that we go after your word. May these things just sink deep into our heart. Lord, I'm sorry that we have to come back and try to wrestle with your words. But you also know... How in our lives, Lord, we're trying to understand and trying to follow you. And I confess openly that, that sometimes it's just overwhelming. And sometimes you spoke things that I still don't understand. So, Lord, let your spirit bring illumination to us. I, I dare to ask not just that we live with the tension, but, Lord, I dare to pray that you would reveal things to us, that you would show us things that we need to know, that you would explain things to us, that they would grow inside of us over time, that we would understand things better every time we come back to the scriptures, that you would not only surprise us with what's there, but you would surprise us with how much we've grown. Lord, let these things stay in our mind. Let us love you with our heart, with our soul, but also our mind. Pray this in your name. Amen.